Remember, remember the 5th of November, the gunpowder, treason, and plot. I know of no reason why the gunpowder treason should ever be forgot. Welcome to Now Playing's DC Comics Hitmen Retrospective Series. There are only murderers in this room. Continuing our look at movies based on DC Comics characters, Arnie, Stuart, and Jacob will be reviewing the film adaptations of Road to Perdition. This is the life we chose, the life we lead. And there is only one guarantee. None of us will see heaven. A history of violence. You got anything to say before I blow your brains out, you miserable prick? V for Vendetta. Are you like a crazy person? I'm quite sure they will say so. The Losers. I am a lethal killing machine. It was a secret government experiment. It did stuff to me. Spooky stuff. Red and Red 2. Eh, they don't make them like that anymore. These podcasts will contain detailed plot spoilers and harsh language. Because it's all so fucking hysterical. Listener discretion is advised. Okay, Billy. Let's show this asshole we mean business. Today we're discussing A History of Violence, starring Viggo Mortensen, Maria Bello, Ed Harris, William Hurt, and directed by David Cronenberg. I'm Arnie, co-host of Now Playing, and I've never been to Philadelphia. Stuart in LA. What's up, Rohims? This is Jacob. (laughs) And here we are at a second movie that I've seen before and would never have thought it was based on a comic. Right, or thought that this was material for now playing. I knew eventually we would get to Cronenberg, because Cronenberg is a big-time horror movie director. In my estimation, he's one of the leading lights. I never miss one of his films, but he's kind of gotten away from the genre these days, and this is a later work. This is his gangster western, as it were, and I just never thought that this would be the first foray into Cronenberg land for now playing. I thought we'd wind up with The Fly much sooner. This is my first time seeing A History of Violence. I read the graphic novel. I'm familiar with Cronenberg. I've seen The Fly, Videodrome, Naked Lunch. I I haven't gone real deep with this stuff, but after reading this graphic novel and knowing what I know of Cronenberg, this seemed like an odd fit. I was interested to see what he would do with this material, to say the least. I have seen this one before. I consider myself a fan of Cronenberg. Not as big a fan as you, Stuart, because I haven't seen all his stuff, but I've seen a lot of his stuff. Some of his more unusual stuff, Existence, Crash, Dead Ringers, The Fly, Dead Zone, all these things are favorite movies of mine. Not everything of his hits with me, didn't care for Naked Lunch, but in the new millennium, he went to action films with Viggo Mortensen. I saw History of Violence and... If we weren't doing a DC Comics retrospective, I would think that the sequel to History of Violence would be Eastern Promises, and that would be an interesting duology. But it turns out, based on a DC graphic novel, I didn't know that until we were discussing it for this retrospective, and so we get to do it now. Yeah, and normally I'm happy to let Jacob cover all comic book duties. I'm not the superhero guy, but when it's a comic book that's not about superheroes, my interest is peaked. When I first saw this movie back in 2005, did not read the comic, 
But for this recording, I sought it out. I wanted to know how similar they were. I wanted to know what Cronenberg saw in it. And the funny thing is, Cronenberg never actually read it. It was actually done by a screenwriter who, in his first draft, did not know who was going to make his film and sort of tailored it for Cronenberg's sensibilities through revisions. But yeah, I think a lot of people could have adapted this comic book. It doesn't scream from the mind of David Cronenberg the way that some movies do. I haven't read the comic. Should I? If this movie piques your curiosity, I think it might be worth checking out as we get into the discussion. It's going to take a different road throughout this film than the comic book did. But I've read the graphic novel, another Paradox Press. Last week we talked about Road to Perdition when DC was trying to do this kind of crime noir line. And that's how this was originally put out, written by John Wagner, or perhaps it's Wagner. I'm not sure how he pronounces his name, but the creator of Judge Dredd. So I was interested to see. I'm a big Judge Dredd comic book fan. A lot of violence in that. So that was one of the draws to me, checking out him doing a different genre, but still keeping that theme of violence going on. I would say this much. If you are hoping to get a lot more pulp, a lot more kind of comic book in your experience, it remains on the page. The more salacious, outlandish details of the story are left in the book. They don't make the translation. This is a very muted, stark movie. And I think by choice... They just didn't go with some of the craziness that's in the comic book. But I guess as we go through the plot, we can point out what remained and what could have been and what's in the book. So, Arnie, do you want to go ahead and give him the rundown? Tom Stahl lives a quiet life working at a diner, married to lawyer Edie and raising daughter Sarah and teenage nerdy son Jack, whose worst problem is being bullied in high school. But it all changes when two psychos try to rob Tom's cafe and, to save the life of a waitress, the seemingly quiet Tom exhibits exacting brutality as he kills both the criminals. Tom's story of heroism hits the news media, bringing Tom to the attention of Philadelphia mobsters. A few of these mobsters, led by Carl Fogarty, pay a visit to Tom in Indiana, convinced that Tom is really Joey Cusack, a member of the Philly mob who blinded Carl in one eye before disappearing. Tom sticks to his identity, but when Carl and his gang threaten Tom's family, Tom reveals himself to be Joey as he kills the mobsters. This causes confusion and threatens Tom's happy marriage and his relationship with his son. But a call from Richie Cusack, Joey's older mobster brother, makes Joey realize he has to go back to Philly to end this. He meets with Richie, who orders the goons to kill Joey, and Joey ends up killing all the mobsters, ending by shooting his brother in the head at Point Blank Range. His tormentors now all dead, Joey returns to his life as Tom Stahl and his family quietly accepts him back and sets him a place for dinner as credits roll. A lot to talk about in there. We're going to go through it a lot more. There's a lot more with the subplot with the son Jack. But when it starts, it doesn't start with any of these. And it had been a while since I'd seen this movie. So I was really confused when we see the very opening scene with two guys at a hotel I kind of remembered that this was about some mobsters. I thought these were the mobsters. Yeah, they're two gentlemen. One's older. He's in black. They don't have names for them, but they're credited with names. Leland is the old guy. Billy's the young guy. I didn't remember this interlude either. I thought that perhaps Billy was Vigo in the past. I thought this could be a flashback. I was trying to orient myself because it's the only time we spend any amount of time for the next hour outside of Melbrook, Indiana. Most of the story takes place in small town America. This hotel thing, yeah, it comes out of nowhere and it really grabs you. 
Yeah, I really love how this opening scene is shot. The way the camera just lingers in the slowness of pace and just watching these gangsters come out of this hotel and then they drive up a couple of feet and go to check out of the office. Leland walks out rubbing his hands, throwing something in the trash. I just love the way it's shot. It's gripping, it's slow, but... The camera just lingers and stays there, and it creates a certain atmosphere. You know something's not right. It doesn't cut, does it? As far as I could tell, and sometimes they have good sleight of hand, but I think this is like really one long lingering shot as we follow the guy in, and he's checking the phone for coins. Almost. It's three shots. There are a couple different edits, but yes, this first shot is a lengthy one. It's almost the opposite impulse of a comic book panel. You know, comic book panel, you look in one corner, they're in one location. You looked at the next one, they're somewhere else. And it really is a fast-moving story on the page. Here, by going with this impulse, all feeling that this was a graphic novel has been erased by this stylistic choice. Yeah, it feels really sparse and foreboding. I mean, a lot of the camera shots take place with gradiated filters that kind of give the sky this dark shadowy wash i mean the disconnect here is this is supposed to be a really hot like muggy thing that gets the young guy out of the car is to go get water because it's supposedly so hot but i always feel like it's about to rain in this environment there's just something about it that just always feels overcast this world feels dark even when it's bright and sunny was this opening from the comic no because i have to say two psychopaths on the run Killing people at a hotel where they're on the lam. This reminds me a lot of From Dusk Till Dawn, where you've got Richie and Seth Gecko staying at a hotel, massacring people at the hotel. I was taken back to that very much. This is a bit more of a horrific take, although Rodriguez and Tarantino did make those two pretty brutal and horrific as well. Yeah, the comic does open with these two guys, but not with this kind of brutality. I mean, they shoot a child in the face. In the movie. Yeah, on the page, it's two teenage young adult hitchhikers that they rob for money and then are mad when they don't have any money. Duh, they're hitchhikers. <laughs> but here, my point of reference is, yeah, a lot of those kind of like neo-noirs from the 90s, the metaphorical westerns, if you were, natural born killers, wild at heart, early Coen brothers. I really think a lot about the Coen brothers watching this setup here. Yeah, I was thinking of... No Country for Old Men, so, yeah, yeah, in some of their older stuff, yes. Yeah, Blood Simple, Air No Country, there hadn't been released at the time of this movie. But it's a very powerful scene, it sets you up right now to know what kind of guys these are. You see the little girl, and again, because it's a movie, I gotta wonder, is the guy who went in for water, he's younger, he isn't the one who I think did the massacre, because he didn't go in to check out, I think the older guy, when he checked out, checked out everybody in that room. So is he going to be the soft heart that lets the little girl go? No, he's going to blow her face off. Right. It sets a tone. There's no doubt about it. If you thought that this was any shading of gray, no, these are really bad guys. These couldn't be more bad guys. It doesn't matter who these people are. All we are to understand is they are irredeemably, completely, totally, horribly bad. They are the hitman of this story. I mean, this is, we're doing DC hitmen. It's these guys. Well, there's a lot of hitmen in this movie. If you don't get the idea that they're bad guys, I'd love the jump cut. He pulls a gun on the child and then it goes to 
Tom Stahl's family, his daughter waking up having a nightmare about monsters. I love that jump because we just saw these two men murder a child, and now we're going to another child dreaming about these monsters. Right, and that could be a little confusing. You might think that that was a nightmare that she had or didn't really happen. It's curious because a lot of time will pass before Leland and Billy return into the story here. I mean, there's a lot of setup, and I prefer just to go ahead and get to their return in the diner, but Cronenberg certainly takes his time. I think he needed the impact of this opening scene to hold your attention, because if we started in Melbrook, Indiana, in this small town, we might have grown bored by the 20-minute mark when these two killers come back decide they need more money, and we know exactly what they're going to do when they walk into that diner and want a cup of coffee. Yeah, the graphic novel gets to that diner scene very quickly, but Cronenberg here, he takes his time. He's really going to set up this family. You know, so much of this film is about the stalls, and so he really wants to take the time to set them up, show them the relationships. We're going to see Jack and his wife, you know, go on a sexy date and really take the time so we could really examine this fall as the movie goes on. It's the opposite of what Hollywood screenwriting would have you do. They would have you do this by page five, six. Certainly by eight minutes into the movie, you want to have these killers facing off. Because this is not their story. We think it is in this opening. I don't think that they spend too long on this. The way you describe it, it makes it sound ponderous and monotonous. I completely disagree. While they do take their time with it and we get introduced to the characters, and of course I'm wondering when these other characters are going to come back, because it's obvious they will. I mean, you don't start a movie like that and not have it go anywhere. But I'm really taken with this. I mean, we only spend maybe 10, 15 minutes tops with the family. and Which is a lot, Arnie. That's 15 minutes of exposition. I'm not saying it's a bad thing for this movie. I'm saying it's a surprise. And it's not the impulse of a Hollywood film. It is not normally how a story like this would be told. 15 minutes of showing a quaint family going about their day, it lets you know that this movie has other concerns. If it were going to follow that graphic novel, it would follow the pacing of that novel. And yes, get to this conflict right away. The fact that Cronenberg lingers shows you that Cronenberg has other ideas that are not in the book that he wants to explore. But at no point is this 10 minutes uninteresting. There's something about this family, the, the themes that are brought out. We get Jack and his wife Edie. They go on this date. She says, you know, we never got to spend time as teenagers together. I want to show you something. And she comes out in this cheerleader uniform. They're doing this role playing, which is going to be great as this movie goes on. This whole film about identities and not knowing, you know, who you are. Here's the wife taking on this different identity. This is going to come out wrong, but the way it lingers on the sex. Yes, I enjoy the scene, not just because it lingers on the sex, but the way Cronenberg shoots it. There's something raw and passionate about it. And I, I feel like he's trying to say something about we're okay with violence. But when we see this like graphic sex, we all of a sudden get you know, our Puritan morals, our sphincters get tight and we get uneasy about seeing this. And the way, you know, you know, this is some very passionate stuff going on. The going into oral and 69ing, like the way it's shot. Yes, there's sex going on, but it's not that. It's the way it's shot that's really holding my attention. Even though I just went from this really horrific, violent scene and now I'm spending 20 minutes with this family, my attention is grabbed and, and I'm enthralled by this. I'm trying to figure out what their story is because I'm surprised when I find out that Jack, who's an older teen coming up on college age, I think the actor's probably in his 20s to look at him. 
I'm thinking that Tom isn't the biological father because no two people who've been married that long seem that passionate who I've ever met. So when you see them having this passionate sex, I'm like, okay, he came into it late. They're recently married and taking a date night. No, they've been together 20 years and just kept the passion alive. They're having to work at it. I mean, clearly it's an effort. This is a rarity. This is not every night with Tom and Edie. I mean, he runs the diner. He spends all day at that diner. He's there when it opens. He's there when it closes. He has a short order cook and a waitress and a few other people he relies on. But largely, this is his enterprise. This is his life. It's not every night that he gets the kids to be somewhere else so that he can entertain his wife. And it's not a surprise that this sex scene was one of the things custom made for Cronenberg. It is oftentimes a device he uses. How people have intercourse tells a lot about who they are in Cronenberg films. I would say most films I can think of of his have at least one sex scene, and usually it's pretty kinky. This one's warm. This one is role-playing. This is, we never got to be teenagers. This is the important plot detail being given here. I didn't know you when you were a young man, but I'm going to put on a cheerleader outfit and we're going to pretend like our parents are in the next room and we're going to play hanky-panky and it's going to be fun. It's a cute scene. It's a warm scene. These actors have a lot of good chemistry together. And it's that line, we never got to be teenagers together, that made me think that they didn't get to be 20-somethings together or 30-somethings together either. Did you meet your wife when you guys were teenagers? No, that's what I'm saying. <laughs> uh, yeah, I don't think many couples meet when they're they're that young. Maybe in that small town, you know, it's the whole Jack and Diane, little pink houses thing. Right. You might presume that they went to high school and never broke up and, and that they were high school sweethearts. You might presume that given that they are living a quote unquote idealized quaint American life as opposed to a big city life where people tend to change their partners and their things in their life more often. Uh, but yes, I, this scene is important, if for no other reason, to let us know that there is a big empty spot in Tom's biography that Edie was not there for. But again, I mean, high school, that seems a little common. And so I don't take it that way. I don't take this scene as an indication that there's parts where they weren't together because like Jacob said a lot of people aren't together in high school when they get married most people I dare say I take this scene to be a showing of exactly how much in love these two are by showing their physicality and showing their time together this way because this is going to come very much into play and into contrast when the movie takes a turn later on well let me ask you this then did you have any suspicion that Tom was a man with a past. The very first time I saw this movie, I didn't know. I spent the first 45 minutes or however long it is in suspense wondering, is this whole movie a case of mistaken identity or is he living a double life and kept oscillating back and forth. So my first time seeing this, I didn't know. The trailers told me that this was a case of these people think he's someone else. Is he? I didn't know. For me, I felt like because they're dwelling on this, because everything is in shadow, because there's this slow ponderousness to the film, I feel like Cronenberg was letting you know that there was something darker there. Even though everything felt nice and idealized and this was a family that clearly cares about each other, they all rally around a child when she has a nightmare. They're concerned about what their son is doing in school. They're connected, but they 
are not connected with every aspect of Tom's life. The fact that there was a mystery about where he came from had me inclined to believe, certainly when we get back to the diner, that this is a man with a violent past. I mean, the way that he handles Leland and Billy when they do return in the story, that's not, you know, a shopkeeper dusting off the shotgun or whatever. I mean, he's got moves. He's got lightning speed. Coffee pot to the face. And I think in the film, it plays differently than in the graphic novel. In the graphic novel, I'm going with that mystery for some time. It, it almost seems like it was by luck that he defeated these two crooks, you know, with the coffee in the face and that. But here, no, Mortensen, he's got some moves in this film. Yeah, when I see this, you said that those guys in the beginning are the hitmen. No, the guys in the beginning aren't paid killers. They're just psychopaths. At this point, I'm thinking Tom here is our hitman. So you did. With the diner scene, you came around and recognized it, that he was a man with the past. I realized that he could kick some ass. He was a badass. Now, is he Joey? I don't know. But now I know he's hiding something. Interesting. You know, Hitchcock oftentimes had this scenario. Wrong guy accused of something, man on the run, north by northwest. Great example of a Hitchcock kind of thriller in which a man is believed to be something that he's not to be something more nefarious than who he is, has to prove himself by going on the run. This is not handled like a Hitchcock movie. With the way that this is set up, Tom just seems dark to me. It's the broodingness of the way Vigo is playing him. It's the way that we see that anger come out. I know, I know that he has done some things in his past. And I know that when his notoriety brings on this Philadelphia mob squad led by Ed Harris, I don't have any doubt that he is Joey. The very first time I saw it, I didn't know. And I'm going to credit Vigo, but say the exact opposite of what you're saying, Stuart. I think Vigo plays two characters here so well that you can see it. Not only does his voice change, he affects a Philly accent. I don't know where Vigo is originally from. I've seen, now seen him do Midwestern, Texan, and Texas Chainsaw, and Philly. But he affects this Philly accent. He has a totally different physicality when he's Joey, a totally different swagger and demeanor. So when he's playing Tom, all these scenes with Tom and even after this, when Jack comes in, you're a hero, Dad, and he's Tom. I don't see what you're saying you see, Stuart. I don't see this brooding. I don't see this darkness. I see he's troubled by what he had to do, but I don't see someone who's instantly afraid that his past is going to come back if he becomes too famous. I don't see it. Oh, no, I agree with that. I'm not saying that... Viggo Morrison is turning the camera and winking at us and letting us know. He is still Tom. There are two people in this movie. He plays two entirely different characters. He is Tom throughout this. He does not break the character of being a small-time diner owner. It is Cronenberg with the way that he is presenting this information that is letting you know that this man is not innocent. I was curious to know whether for you guys it was a mystery. For me, I make presumptions when I see a Cronenberg movie. I didn't think that Cronenberg would make a movie about a wrongly accused man who had to fight mobsters. I knew that all leading men in Cronenberg movies have a dark side, and it comes forward. 
Well, like I said, I had read the graphic novel first. So I knew where this was going, but I was intrigued by that story. Maybe it was the wrong guy. I think that's a great story there. The story about identity and can you change and, you know, these people come and they accuse you and accuse you. I, either way, I think it could work here. Whether he, this was the wrong guy or he did have a past. I do like the mystery of this, whether your first time is reading the graphic novel or seeing the movie here. I like this mystery that it presents. Yeah, you still want to know what he did. I mean, even though I believe that the mob is caught up with him and that he is going to have to answer for his past. What was it that Joey did that made him have to turn into Tom? And how bad is Joey that he can just shoot somebody in the face like he does with Leland and leaves his jaw all over the diner floor? I mean, the violence, it's very brief here, but it's really a graphic one. I mean, I really do feel like that's a signature of Cronenberg that typically blood guts he has a way of visualizing them that it sticks with you oh yeah when i saw that leland's jaw and it's kind of still like moving up and down i'm like okay now this feels like a cronenberg movie if it hadn't before now it does once i get that violent bloody pulpy mess there and it should be said in the comic book there is some doubt on fogarty's thinking when he gets there he's old he's only got one eye he is not sure whether this is the guy or not it was a long time ago maybe it is maybe it isn't Ed Harris plays the character very, very differently. There is not a doubt in his mind. He's still got the messed up eye. There's no doubt in his mind that he's found Joey. And he's just reveling in it. He's taunting this guy, you know, hovering outside his house in the black car. He loves walking into his diner and calling him out in front of his wife. Ed Harris, I expected him not to be very good. I don't think of Ed Harris as a dangerous guy. I don't think of him as a mobster. Truthfully, this is very sad, and I'm sure if he was listening to this, he'd be very upset. But the first thing that comes to mind for me with Ed Harris is the movie Milk Money with Melanie Griffith. Oh, my God. <laughs> Arnie, the things you pull out. Yeah, that's amazing. Well, that if that's your reference, then yes, I imagine this is a revelation to see. I think of Ed Harris as being a very macho actor. I think of him in, yeah. in a lot of action movies and being the alpha male. This is not out of his milieu at all. I mean, don't get me wrong. I have seen him in so much other stuff, but he never made an impression on me. Not like Milk Money. No. <laughs> That's the one with <laughs> Melanie Griffith is a hooker in a tree, right? Yes. In a, a, a horrible, horrible rom-com. The reason I go back to it is because it is so bad. And Ed Harris is so awful in a Tom Hanks role. I don't think he should be in a Tom Hanks role. When he's playing Kristoff in the Truman Show, there is a menace to him. When he's playing Jackson Pollock and he's a drunk, he's always seemed kind of grizzled to me and mm -hmm. have a, a certain menace to his performances. Yeah, he's a tough guy. I, I don't see it, Arnie, but I, I didn't see Milk Money, so there you go. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I've seen these other movies you're talking about in Truman Show. I just thought he was quirky. In The Rock, I thought he was adequate, but come on, we're not watching Ed Harris. We're watching Nick Cage and Sean Connery. So to see him here give such a dangerous performance shocked me. Every performance in this movie, bar none, is tremendous and not just believable, but so affecting and the way that in their silence, they tell us so much about their character. So yeah, I had very low expectations for Ed Harris, and he blows me away in this film. But we can agree he's great. You can't take your eyes off of him, particularly because he has that deformity. You know, whatever did that to his face, you just, he knows how to play it. You know, he pulls off those glasses, and he's smiling, but 
you're not smiling. It's a performance of pure menace, and nothing can get to the guy. The sheriff pulls him over and tries to scare him. He's reading the paper in the backseat. He's like, yeah, whatever. I mean, this guy, he's well-connected. You know he's killed before, and you know that he's going to do something really bad here. We don't know if he's going to kill Joey, but Tom thinks he's going to kill Joey because he freaks out. He starts having hallucinations or something where he's running home to protect his wife. Yeah, he sees Fogarty's car pull away and he starts running home like, really? You're going to beat the car there? Okay. But yeah, you could see the panic in that, that he's willing to run home and he, he has some kind of injury. He's limping as he's running there. It looks painful the way he's running home and trying to get there, closing the door, getting the shotgun. You know, there's a lot of tension there. I'm not even sure if that was really real. There's a cut scene that I think that shouldn't have been cut. But prior to that moment, you might be wondering why Tom is alone with the diner not even open that he walked to work. Well, he had been having panic attacks at night and there was a dream sequence in which he blows Ed Harris away in the diner and is very Cronenberg. The man's got a gaping hole. It's still smoking from the shotgun bullets, and he just pulls out a gun and shoots Vigo. I mean, the idea is that he is so afraid of Fogarty, he can't sleep, so he walks to work. He mentions that his pickup is broken, and so he walks to work on his bum leg that was injured with the fight earlier, and is, yeah, just trying to deal with it. They, they should have kept that scene. I feel like the way it comes in now, it really makes Tom look guilty. Can you agree? At this point, the wife is clearly starting to see the cracks. The sheriff thinks he might be in the witness protection program, thinks there is some legitimacy to these guys at least being gangsters and that they know something of him in the past. I mean, you have to admit, at this point, he's looking pretty guilty. I'm still going to say that the very first time I saw it, I felt it walked a line. And I'm thinking of other suspense movies and thrillers and noir films where the walls start to close in. Is it that Tom is Joey or is it that everybody is going to think Tom is Joey except for Tom and maybe Edie? And Tom would be the only one who knows the truth. I didn't know. I'm going to tell you, at no point did I figure it out till the movie tells me the very first time I watched it the whole time. I was in suspense wondering which way it would go. I know sometimes on Now Playing, we like to go, we were smarter than the film and we figured it out. This one had me going, wondering the whole time until the big scene where Tom goes away, Joey comes out and kills two guys. Two more guys, I should say. Yeah, it's the showdown. You know, this is kind of a Western here. The big bad man's coming to town to the farm. And yeah, surprising because of the pace of the start of this. But it isn't too long after he's meet Fogarty that Fogarty has got his son and is demanding that Joey, him, get into that car and go back to Philly with him, which we know is the end of him, right? He's going to be killed. He's going to get whacked if they do that. So what's he going to do? He is going to show his hand. And this is coming right about the 50-minute mark of the movie. And you want to talk about brutality and violence, the way he breaks that guy's nose up into his brain, killing him. And I expect Joey, because I think of Joey as like this superhero almost with the opening scene and the way he takes these two guys out. I figure Fogarty's going down, but Fogarty gets the draw on him. Fogarty was going to win, and it's Jack who shoots Fogarty in the back. Now, Jack's kind of had his own storyline going on in parallel. We saw him get bullied, and after his dad became the hero at the diner, Jack was forced into a confrontation where he brutally beat the shit out of two bullies. Yeah, I, that is a 
brutal scene. You know, you want to do an anti-bullying campaign. Show that scene right there. It's an interesting change from the graphic novel. In the graphic novel, it's high noon. The wife walks in and shoots Fogarty and saves Jack. Here it's the sun, and thematically, I think it really works. We've seen the sun struggle with violence, struggle with getting bullied and lashing out. And, and you know, there's that scene when... Jack runs home and they got the shotgun. The son goes and he picks it up and, you know, just holds that thing. And calling this a history of violence, you know, it's not just about Jack's past catching up with him, but we're seeing that passed on now to his children through his son. So I, I like that change from the graphic novel. I think it really works thematically here by having the son shoot Fogarty. Yeah, I like that change thematically. I am going to ding the movie. Arnie, you said across the board these are great performances. I think the kids are weak. I think the little girl is bad. I don't think this kid's much better. I wish that they had a stronger actor. It's awkward because we're supposed to think that he originally got out of bullying by his wits. And there's a really badly written scene in which he's cornered after a baseball game and talks his way out of getting beat. And then the whole flip with him actually being violent, I didn't buy it. And I put it on the actor. It was his first film. And I don't know why he got the role. I think this kid's good. I don't think he comes off like Edie or Tom's son, but this actor, I went through two-thirds of this movie thinking this was Jesse Eisenberg's first role. I, I thought the same thing. He has the mannerisms, the vocal inflections, the hair. I really thought it was him, and I like this actor in this role. I like seeing him because he comes across as weak. And that scene where he's smoking weed, he comes across as sarcastic and smart. I like that about him. And so to see him go from using his brains to using his fists, that's a sad scene. On the one hand, I'm like, yeah, kick that bully's fucking ass. On the other hand, I'm like, oh, man, that's not you. That's not who you are. That's not who you should be. But yet it's in his genes. So it is who he is. Right. I think it was instigated largely because the bully cited his father. His father had become so notorious for being a hero. That word had been bandied around by the public so much. And it was so in contrast to the actual truth of the matter. I mean, he doesn't know at this point that his father is bad, but he's not willing to have his father brought up in the school taunts. I think that if it were just about him, if this kid were just picking on him, he would have been able to say, oh, well, yeah, I'm just a geek. I'm just a nerd, whatever. But it was because they went after his father's reputation that he snapped, which makes it all the more painful that now he's got to accept that they were right. The bully was right. The town was right. And now he's got to accept the fact that his father is not the hero that the town tried to make him out to be. It's the most painful looking hug I think I've ever seen in any movie ever after the kid is shot Ed Harris and Vigo in Joey mode is trying to get back to being Tom and give his son a hug. It is a strange, it may be the most powerful moment in the whole movie for me. It's just a strange embrace. You can just see the struggle and the pain of being outed. You know, Tom is not Tom anymore. He can try and pretend, but everyone can see he's Joey. I don't know if it's the most emotionally powerful scene. I think that's going to come at the end with a family scene. But yeah, I get what you're saying, Stuart. And going back to what Arnie was saying, there is this change that Vigo does between Tom and Joey. And we see that here after this big, brutal, violent shootout. He goes... Back to trying to be a father, and it's not easy. It's not, we see that on the screen, and I, I just great acting all around. Yeah. And Vigo Mortensen, we talked about him a bit with 
Texas Chainsaw Massacre 3, which I'm glad we're finally getting a chance to talk about them in something other than Texas Chainsaw Massacre 3. Yes. But I'm not a Lord of the Rings fan. I've seen the three movies. He made virtually no impression on me in that film. I quite often get him confused with somebody else in that film. So I don't know, other than Lord of the Rings, where this guy comes from, what his background is beyond Texas Chainsaw and Lord of the Rings. I know I've seen stuff in him. IMDb tells me I've seen stuff in him. But I could not imagine watching Lord of the Rings that Aragon had this range, this depth, this ability to truly turn on a performance. Because this, to me, is a a performance that truly is award-worthy without being pandering like, hey, give me an award. No, I I agree. And I think it was this way for everyone. I think up to that point, this was the hunk from Lord of the Rings who had worked for 20 years and not really made any real impression beyond that movie. And it has been Cronenberg, really, that has given us the dramatic actor Viggo Mortensen. I mean, he's he made Eastern Promises with him, which I think is an even more phenomenal transformational performance. He even played Freud in a recent movie. I mean, this guy has got range, and Cronenberg gets it out of him. It's a really good partnership. I really love to see these guys too work together. You're right. This is pivotal that we be able to see two men in one body and Vigo does it. It's just an incredible performance. And the other person I want to call out as just being amazing in this film is Maria Bello, who stands toe-to-toe with Vigo and I think gives every bit as good a performance. Now, she doesn't have to portray two characters. She portrays one, but she has, I think, the harder role. She's the role of the wife. And throughout all this, we had to believe her in love with him. We got that very well in that 69 scene. We have to see her as the wife, but it's in these scenes starting when she's facing off against Ed Harris in the mall. And she is a mixture of fury and fear and all these conflicting emotions that come from her. And after this scene, there's this awesome scene in the hospital room where Vigo's again hospitalized after this fight and she has to throw up in the bathroom and she's pissed off. Who are you? Why did you pick this name? And I love his response. It was available. Yeah, when he admits that he's Joey, that she starts doing that hacking and that vomiting, like, that sold me on her. I'm like, yes, I'm buying this, that her whole world has totally been torn apart here with this revelation. Yeah, you're right. It's a great moment. It's believable. Again, a Hollywood movie would not linger on these details. First of all, I don't believe that they would have allowed him to be this bad guy. You know, we've seen movies where outlaws have been redeemed when they come to small towns and rally and and they be that hero and we like them for it. But it's not playing that way at all. It's playing like you are a liar and everything we believe is untrue and you are just as vicious as those men that you put down. I mean, the way I see it, there probably is no difference between Joey and Fogarty at all. Tom is a different man, but Joey is one of them. It's here, too, where Cronenberg starts playing some of his subversive games. I'm noticing it throughout the movie. You know, during that sex scene, he takes off a shirt. He's wearing a crucifix. I always notice it when a character has JC as initials, Joey Cusack here, but they definitely now are doing a Christ parallel thing. Apparently, Joey went to the desert, killed his evil self, and has returned as this good Christian man. I mean, I do feel like it's important to understand that in this character's mind, 
Joey is no more, that he has been redeemed. He has been saved by his religion, by his becoming a small town business owner and embracing American values. This has changed him. He is not who they are claiming, even though DNA test would say otherwise. One of the big changes from the graphic novel is the graphic novel in this second act goes into the whole history, the whole background of Joey and what he did and why the mob's after him. I, th I felt it kind of slowed it down. What I like here is if you're trying to sell us that Tom is this changed man, that that past is gone. I like that it doesn't really linger on that past. We don't get a big flashback. We get a few lines, you know, we, we get just enough to let us know that something bad happened and he did something to change his life, to leave that Joey character behind and become this new man. Am I the only one who thinks that he killed Tom? That's how the name became available, is Joey killed a guy named Tom Stahl? Oh, interesting. It, it hadn't occurred to me, but yes, the way that he says it's available, well, that would be one way that an identity would be available. And we know that Tom supposedly came from Portland. So, yeah, he could have traveled around a lot. Who knows where he was before he made that commitment in the desert to be born again. I like that we don't know it either. I particularly don't like the way it's written in the comic book because the comic book, they pull punches. You find out that this character teamed up with a friend, it's not his brother, to rob real gangsters so that he could pay for his grandmother's surgery. There's all kinds of reasons given as to why he does bad deeds. That's not what this story is about. This is not about a guy that had to do bad things and now it's catching up with him. It's about a man who claims to be good, who used to be bad, who used to be as bad as those hitmen in the beginning. And would we forgive those hitmen in the beginning if they had a change of heart and settled down in one of those small towns where they had been killing people and said, you know what, I'm going to turn over a new leaf. We're seeing the same character in different cycles. And at different points, at some points, we want them punished. And at other points, we want them protected. I think it's a game that Cronenberg is playing here because it really is about redemption. It becomes a drama, less an action movie, about can you be redeemed for the things that you do? Speaking of redemption, I mean, I think this stands in stark contrast to what we talked about last week yes. with Road to Perdition. This film, we see the son shoot someone. It's to save his father, yes, but after that, his son's like, will you have me whacked? And he's like, can I get a cut? We see the son going on that Road to Perdition in this film that we didn't get in that one. We see the effects of violence that it has on this family. I just feel this film is so much more powerful than that one we watched last week because it's willing to challenge the audience, challenge our allegiances. Do we root for Joey? It's the big Hollywood star from Lord of the Rings, but ooh, he's kind of not that great when we see this Joey character come out of him. I'm never that conflicted. I actually always root for him. I guess it's just because he is our central character. He's our protagonist. And Joey came out to save people. When he calls on this other person, he calls on it to do good. So while he has a dark past and his good deeds this time, first protecting his employee and then protecting his family, are extraordinarily brutal to watch Cronenberg just create such gore and realism to these scenes. They're not played for glory, they're played for brutality, but because he's doing bad things for good reasons in this film, I root for him 100%. But he's also brought about bad things to his family because he lied. I mean, he, in a way, has brought this on. He knew he had a past. He had to know that there was always this danger lurking. He put a family at risk. 
yeah, there's 20 more minutes before we get back into this gangster plot where it's just about people processing what does this mean. And you're right, Jacob. I couldn't help thinking in close proximity to road perdition that, yeah, we now have another father looking at his history and passing his legacy on to his child. I do feel like there's more at stake here because the child is killed. I didn't buy the conflict last week of, oh, if he ever pulls a trigger, even if it's in self-defense to help me, that means he's damned to a life of being a mobster. It doesn't mean that. People kill in self-defense and they don't go and, and start a crime. We don't think that this kid is going to go and be a mobster in Philly because he shoots Fogarty. What it really means is how am I going to live with them knowing who I really was and maybe who I really am? What was the lie? Who is the real person? Cronenberg very skillfully brings it all back to sex. And you have a really incredible scene between the wife and the husband where she screws Joey now. It's not Tom that she screws. And this is what I love about how that first sex scene was set up is about role playing. She's the cheerleader. They're teenagers. And now it's still about role playing, except now it's Tom doing. Now he's in the Joey character and that juxtaposition and, and this sex scene with Joey instead of Tom, it's a very brutal one. They're, they're up against the stairs. We're going to see her bruised afterwards. Yeah, it's a sex scene and I can tell she's into it because she pulls him to her. But I bring that out because it's a consensual sex scene that plays like a rape. It starts as violence. It should be pointed out is that they're fighting, that the sheriff has come and Tom has almost confessed to him. And she intervenes and says through tears, I can't handle this right now. And you're just accusing our family and go away. And the sheriff does. He kind of drops out of the picture. There's no more inquiry as to whether there's legal ramifications for Tom for killing these men on his lawn. But the scene continues on with her really angry that she is married to this Joey. And, you know, she slaps him. She tries to get away. He goes at her throat. It looks like he's choking her for just a minute. And then, yeah, it changes. And it is a willful act. It is because Maria Bello is so good. We understand it is not Tom forcing himself on her. It is her making the choice of trying to get to know who Joey is. And maybe it's just angry sex, or maybe she just needs to know whether through sex she can have that feeling again that she had, like, the first scene. I kind of thought, truthfully, she was turned on by the bad boy. Like, you know, there's always that stereotype that women love a bad boy. She'd been with safe Tom for 20 years. I kind of got something else out of that. Maybe she's kinky. I don't know. You know, she doesn't have a character arc beyond being defined by her relationship. I'm not even sure what her job is. She's in many ways an underwritten character, but uh, yes, this does beg a lot of questions, and it is to the credit of this actress that we see these dimensions here. You're right, it could be that. The other thing, though, the only, only character choice I just don't get in this movie is after the sex scene, Maria Bello comes, does full frontal nudity, has a look of disgust on her face, and then walks away without saying a word. Now, Maria Bello, I mean, I praised her performance here. She's good in a lot of things I've seen her in. I really love her in The Cooler, another movie where she's just not afraid to show off her body. But here, I don't understand the point of the full frontal. It seems a little gratuitous, like, hey, let's just show it. And I don't understand why she went from that passionate sex scene to seeming so disgusted with him 
when she was the one who pulled him in. I get that she's a conflicted character with conflicted emotions, but that is a turn that left me going, I don't get it. And sadly, that's the last we really see of her. You're complaining about Full Frontal, Arnie? I know, it's bad if I'm complaining about Full Frontal. It means a movie actually got beyond my base enjoyment and into my mind. Yeah, we'll never know whether she's going to accept him. Where we see her now is where she is at the end of the film, of having to rectify who she thought her husband was and who he actually is. And yeah, in this moment, she's repulsed. I do want to say one of the things that the book does get right, that the movie, well, it's a little Hollywood, is they're not very hot on the page. They look very much more like a traditional small town, unglamorized, non-movie star kind of characters. I mean, Maria Bello and those legs, I mean, come on. I mean, it, she must be working out all the time. I mean, this is a much more sexy version than what is on the page here, but I think that that was a small compromise to make in order to get this vision on screen. It's mostly a very uncompromised movie, but it did have me wondering, what would it have been like if we had flipped roles here? What it would it have been like if Tom Hanks had played this character. I'll tell you what, if Tom Hanks had played it, I would have been less inclined to believe that he was going to be this irredeemable gangster. I don't ever want to have the mental image in my head that you just gave me of Tom Hanks 69ing, so thank you, Stuart. <laughs> well, that's what I mean. It would be a real, a real shock. Yeah. Maybe if you had that little mustache? <laughs> yeah, the mustache, yes. I don't know. But it would be interesting. I mean, I think that we would be less likely to suspect evil from Tom Hanks than I do from Vigo. I guess it's just because Eastern Promises is so fresh in my mind. I don't think of him as a hero. I think of him as very much a character actor, whereas Tom Hanks is always likable Tom Hanks, even when he's a mobster. But it's after this point that the movie really changes. In its final act, it's totally different than what we've seen before. And sometimes when movies do that, when they've been about people in a place and about a group of people and they completely change at the end, the movie can often alienate me. Because... What happens is after Tom's killed all the mobsters here, he gets a call from Richie and has to leave his family behind. This movie, like you pointed out, Stuart, has spent so much time about the relationship with the family. It's over. We're not even going to return to it except for a brief, brief moment at the end. Tom's going to drive to Philadelphia and the movie's going to end very far removed from this Indiana town. Well, Joey's going to drive to Philadelphia, but yes, the flip has happened. Richie calls is basically what happens. Even though we've seen all of the mobsters taken off, the sheriff did identify that Joey Cusack was related to a Richie Cusack, who is the head of a crime syndicate. And now Richie Cusack is asking for him. I think Joey knows at this point that there is no being Tom until he truly kills all of this off. I think he recognizes that he has to put this past to the bed at this point. And you're right. It is a different movie. It is a much more traditional gangster movie. I think we needed it at 70 minutes in. The audience probably is expecting this kind of jolt here at the ending. It wouldn't feel right to end it being a family drama about processing dead bodies on the lawn. We needed to have one more shootout. I'm agreeing. I completely like where the movie goes. Well, maybe not Philadelphia. I've never been to Philadelphia, but I like the way the movie plays out. I'm just saying it's an unusual thing to take a movie and change it so drastically in the third act. It seems like a gamble, but one that pays off in spades. I agree with you. This is what Tom has to do is he left Philadelphia as Joey 
And now he has to return as Joey one last time to face what he left behind. I mean, that's what this whole movie really is about. Despite all the lip service and great performances given to family, it's really about Joey finally having to face what he ran away from those many years ago. You're saying this is a big change for this third act. This is a big change from the graphic novel where Richie isn't Joey's brother. He's a childhood friend and he's been kept alive by the mob, but limbs and fingers and toes and, you know, slowly chopped away, slowly tortured over 20 years to where he's just like this torso and a head hanging in a warehouse. Seems weird that Cronenberg didn't go that direction. That seems like a very Cronenbergian image to me. I think the Cronenberg of his young days would be more fascinated with the idea of how a body could stay alive for 20 years in such a tortured, desiccated state. But I think the Cronenberg of this movie is much more, eh, shall we say, politically minded. I really feel like the movie does become metaphorical in a lot of ways here with this character. I feel like it is very much a statement of its time and that the situation of dealing with a head of a household, a leader who we thought was good, but who has now been exposed to being connected to illicitness. Well, if I didn't suspect it from the movie, I did from the behind scene commentary and footage have it confirmed. This was very much for Cronenberg a way to explore Bush. I didn't get that. Yeah, I, I need you to explain that to me. I, I don't get how this is a Bush metaphor. I think those are sticky. I, I want to say that sometimes when you have metaphors, you're making direct parallels. I think he wanted to look at the fact that Bush was someone who, selling himself as a Christian, born again, a family man of family values, but who had, in Cronenberg's estimation, a very dark past that he did not rectify with and that did not match up with the acts. And that basically it's just that. It's about exploring the ideas and the context without actually making direct parallels. I think we'll get that next week. I think that's V for Vendetta. But for this time, I think it's about taking it out of the heated discussion of the political realm and just looking at the character, as it were. Whether you accept that that's who Bush was, that was Cronenberg's perception. And what did it mean then for him to try and be a good father and a criminal at the same time? You know what, then? That drives home something I already felt, is in analyzing this movie. The first time I saw it, I liked how this played out. Okay, it's his brother. Go with it. Brothers, you know, you always have that rivalry. but. In watching it this time and really looking at the story of family, I felt wouldn't it be a little bit thematically stronger if Joey was going back and Richie was his father? Because we've seen Tom and Jack play out the father-son. Really, I think that is every bit as important a relationship, maybe even more important because Jack has more of an arc with his own violence than we've gotten between Tom and Edie. So if Joey was going back to meet his father, that to me would have carried on the themes of paternal violence and abuse and teaching what is right. And I just think it would have had more of a theme than going home to a brother. You bring in Bush, imagine if he was going home to a father, Bush Sr. It would have been much more literal if they had gone that way. I think this was a compromise made because I think they really liked having William Hurt. And William Hurt is basically a little older, but around the same age as Vigo. The story was that they weren't even brothers. They were childhood friends. They were peers that had gotten into some trouble with mobsters. And that was what the character on the page was coming home 
That was who Richie was to him. It was never that relationship. But you're right. It would have made those connections even more overt. Whereas here, I think Cronenberg, he didn't want to get political. He didn't want to get out there and dogmatize our times. I think he really just wanted to look at the perception, whether you accept Bush is a criminal that pretends to be a Christian or not. That was a perception. And that was how he wanted to view this story. But wouldn't it also have strengthened the Jack storyline if it was his dad waiting in Philly? I wish that there was more to the Jack storyline. I feel like that one truly got dropped. Everything with the bully, all of that. It is a criticism I have of this movie that that really kind of just stops midway through. As soon as he pulls the trigger, there isn't anything more for Jack to do in the story. I think it's a misstep of the writing. Yeah, all the characters seem to have an ending point here besides Joey. Like, the son, he gets in that fight, you know, that's really, okay, he had that turn. Okay, Edie, we see the violent sex, and then she looks at him with disgust. Okay, you know, yeah, I do think there were more opportunities, especially for as we get closer and closer to the end, and we see him return to the family. Like, yeah, there should have been more with that family, show their struggle more. But I think the important thing to recognize here, forget Bush parallels or 9-11. I don't want to draw those direct parallels. All I want to say is we're dealing with a man who claims to be Christian and has this kind of past. And how is he going to rectify it? And can he rectify it? Can he be redeemed? Could those men at the beginning of the diner be acceptable 20 years later if they looked like Tom? I mean, that's really the question I have looking at this. And yes, I kind of know that this is going to end in a shootout, but I want to see how he puts it to bed. I want to see how Joey is going to handle the situation. We've been promised his violence, and we've seen it in short little bursts, but now we're going to get the doozy here in Philly. William Hurt, I just want to say I love what he's doing here. It's way over the top. It's like nothing else that anyone else is doing in the movie. Well, maybe Ed Harris, but it's even bigger. He comes off as kind of this surfer guy, like I said in my intro. Hey, Brohim, like... Yeah, it's a really weird performance. When does William Hurt give anything other than a really weird performance, though? I mean, honestly, does this man ever give you an intuitive performance? Do you ever watch him in a role and go, yep, that's what I expected? Well, there is a William Hurt kind of role, which is to say that I can think of him, particularly in the 80s, having a type of movie where he played this sort of disaffected yuppie who was handsome and kind of shallow and maybe learned his lesson or maybe he didn't. But broadcast news, the doctor, I I do feel like there is a William Hurt role and this ain't it. This is William Hurt older and not working as often and just, yeah, being weird and taking this to an extreme that I think really works. I really am grateful that he goes so big here at the end. Yeah, he is wonderful in a movie full of great actors. I'm not going to say he's the best. He's the one who got the Academy Award nomination, but I still think Vigo is the best. Yes. But he is so good in this and coming in so late and to still make such an impact. And he really is. You said he's bigger than Ed Harris. He is like a continuation of that role, of that performance. And I don't know if the two got together, but it feels like an evolution of that same character portraying that same kind of menace. It is the person from the past. It's now a different person because Ed Harris is dead, but it's still that same role. The person from the past reaching out to get you, only because it's the boss, we've got Hurt as, like, the bigger bad. 
Yeah, and we kind of understand the, what happened here, that Ed Harris, I think, worked for him. He was a made man. Joey, having killed him now, has screwed things up for William Hurt. It's really a funny dialogue where he was like, I was going to be the, an even bigger you know, head of whatever. The guy's living a crazy mansion with all these guards and whatever. Joey's like, I think he got it good already. But this man is thinking about ambition and all that he could have and feeling denied because Ed Harris got whacked by Joey and created problems for him. And now it's going to get solved. And I do think that you can kind of sense that William Hurt would accept Joey coming back to the fold if it were Joey. He doesn't accept Tom and he will never accept that Tom lives this farm life with married. I mean, just everything that he represents is distasteful to William Hurt's character. But I do feel like there is some testing here. It isn't just, I'm going to whack you. It's, I'm going to whack you if you aren't going to remain Joey. I didn't get that. I kind of felt like this was a showdown. You called it a Western earlier. I feel like they're, they're at the 10 paces just waiting to see who draws first. This whole scene is so tense, and despite all the words, I mean, you got William Hurt saying, I tried to kill you when you were a baby. I don't think it's going to change now. <laughs> yeah, I, I agree with you, Arnie. I got the, tons of tension in, in this whole scene, and I always felt like it was building up to brother against brother. Well, we know that... Tom is never going to let Joey win. So if this is going to transpire this way, then yeah, he's going to have to die for it. I, I do feel like it is the logical conclusion. It would be much more startling if Joey was like, okay, and that was the end of the movie. But this is a redemption story, and Tom is going to try and earn it here by killing everyone very violently. <laughs> Just like he's done throughout the film. But a great scene. I mean, this stands up there with some of the best action scenes we've ever covered on Now Playing. It's full of suspense, and it's horrific, and it's brutal, but it's exciting. It's a guy in a big mansion trying to kill the owner of the mansion. It's like a really brutal end of Beverly Hills Cop. See, this is wild to me. I never thought of this movie as an action movie. I never would have thought that this scene would have had payout for people looking for that. The violence here is, happens in really short clips. I mean, it's kind of over before it even begins. It's a bullet to the head. It's a couple people whose faces get, ends up splattered or what have you. But I really don't feel like the action is designed to be indulged in the way that an action movie does. No, this is not an action movie. This is a drama that has some violent scenes. I'm not saying it's an action movie. I'm saying this is an action scene, and it plays well as an action scene. The way it's staged, there's no wire foo or anything, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying this is a Jackie Chan 20-minute fight. It's very brief, but the suspense in it, the number of kills in it, the twists and turns, the way the henchmen go down, the seemingly endless stream of henchmen. How many guys are in this mansion? I do like the efficiency of it. It's not a long, drawn-out scene. You know, you get one of the henchmen, he tries to, what, use the ripcord and choke Joey, and Joey, you know, turns that around. I love William Hurt line how do you fuck that up <laughs> you know when he gets out of that and gets a gun and just starts shooting people i like you know the calm of richie and joey just going balls out doing what he can but it never feels beverly hills cop to me it, there's a different atmosphere to it. it it's something necessary for joey to do there's not joy in it i'm not watching this going fuck yeah as, as you know he jumps out of the mansion as it explodes or something there's almost a sadness to it that tom has to revert to joey to try to get his life back. 
Yeah, I wonder how much we are expected to be into these scenes, knowing that the movie is about violence and a man who is trying to escape it. What is our role here as we're watching this? Are we rooting him on? Do we take glee when he puts down his brother, when he puts down these nameless henchmen? Is that something we want to see, or is this the loss of soul right in front of us. See, and because to me, he's always pulled this out for good and he drives to Philadelphia to protect his family. And when I get there, this whole tension is kill or be killed. What I don't want to see and what I'm not going to put past Cronenberg is Tom slash Joey dying here. You call out Christ parallels. I don't want to see it ended with him strung up on a crucifix and dying. So if it's kill or be killed, I am rooting for Tom. I'm so emotionally invested in this character and the journey we've seen him take over 90 minutes that if it's kill or be killed, I want to see Joey come out and kill against these impossible odds. We know Joey is not invincible because Ed Harris had him down. And if it wasn't for Jack, Joey would have been killed. So here, there's no Jack to back him up. It's just Joey on his own. So in that way, I am rooting for him. And in that way, that's where the suspense comes from is because I don't want to see Richie kill Tom. No, it's true. We, for whatever reason, and I'm not sure why, it's because the story has been manipulated by Cronenberg so skillfully that we still want to see this horrible man escape. Even though when I think about it out of context, I'm not sure he deserves it. Yeah, you're right. We want to see him at least take out these bad guys. As far as dying at the end, well, that would be the easy way out, wouldn't it? Be martyred. You did the right thing and you saved a family and that goodness is upheld. And through your death, you've done something good. Nope. He's got to live with this. He's got to try and be Tom. Yeah, when he returns as Tom, hopefully he's put Joey to rest, all his enemies are gone, returns to his family. This is a punch in the stomach when I'm watching this ending scene, you know, sitting down to dinner, shadows everywhere. There's times where you only see, like, the person's face and the rest is just lost in shadow and in darkness. And the mournful look on these kids as they, you know, the daughter gets his father a plate, the son serves him a piece of meatloaf. We started with this family comforting the little girl after a nightmare and now to see, you know, this family get back together here at the end and it's dark and shadowy and sad and remorseful. It's almost like we've entered that nightmare the girl had. We know that Tom really wants this. I can tell from this scene that Tom is perfectly willing to go back to the way things are. And few people really know about the rest of it. It would just be a family secret and maybe they'd have to deal with the sheriff. But Tom is willing to play ball. What I do not know in the final shot, and what I don't even know whether I want it to happen, is whether Edie is going to accept it. Whether this is something that you could live with. From her perspective, it would be devastating, but I don't know that I could do it. This movie ends going to her face, to his face. That is the focus. Again, all in shadows. You really just see their faces and the pain on them, and it... Again, a punch in the stomach, because I don't know. I don't know where she's going to go. I don't know what's going to happen to this family now that there's a history of violence, not just with Tom, but throughout this whole family. And what is that violence going to do to them? The way that the table is set wordlessly and the fact that he disappeared to Philadelphia without telling anyone he was going. He just disappears for a couple of days and then he comes back. Similar to how he initially went to the desert. I kind of took this scene as everybody in the room just going, Joey is now fully and completely dead. We're going to go back to how it was, and we're all now going to live the lie of Joey instead of just one of us. 
I feel it's much more of a challenge. I mean, I definitely feel like it's a cynical challenge of, is this someone that you want to be married to? Is this someone you want at the head of your household? I take the place setting as acceptance. I don't see that at all. You and I are, we seem to both be enjoying it, but I think we're seeing totally different movies. I agree. And keep in mind, the daughter set that table place setting for him. It was not set for him by the wife. Of course, a small child would want her father to return who doesn't know anything that goes on. I'm not even sure she understood someone died on her lawn, but everyone else, the son, the wife, They didn't set that play setting, and I don't recommend that they do. (laughs) Well, we do see the son, though. He serves them dinner. He puts food on his plate. There is an acceptance by the children, but not by the wife. She never makes any gesture towards him. She looks up. That's all she does. She's crying. She looked down. She couldn't look at him. And then she looks up. He's pleading with his eyes. The end. It's for her to decide. But to me, it's very open-ended. I do not feel that we are going to get that traditional comfort of feeling like everything can be good again. Admittedly, this is an ending that could be taken multiple directions. I'm just telling you what I see in it because he is sat there. And just, again, the fact that these actors have given me so much in this movie without ever speaking... I feel that their body language, their facial expressions, their eyes are telling me tons. And when I see Maria Bello in that last scene holding his contact, just the shape of her lips, it's not a smile, but is it hinting at one? It is definitely love. And he is showing love back at her and then it cuts to black. My reading of this is they will move forward. You could take it however you want. If you're a pessimist or a cynic, you can go, well, they're fucked. If you're an optimist and a dreamer and believe in love, maybe you go, yeah, they're going to make it work. But it's whatever ending you want to write. And let's write our ending. Jacob Stewart, do you recommend a history of violence? Jacob. I don't recommend that you have a history of violence. (laughs) Don't go joining the mob and shooting people (laughs) and then lying about it to your wife and having to catch up with you. But this film... Let me talk about this film, A History of Violence. When we talk about, we get into these nitty-gritty details and and things that just don't jive for me in other movies. Where's the theme in this scene? Is this just a scene to get us to laugh, or or is there something more to this scene? I feel this movie is a great example for how stories should be told. When you want to get into good storytelling, where each scene, it's telling us something. There's a theme to it. I talk about the two juxtaposed sex scenes, where they're about having sex with people with different identities, and identities a big theme throughout this film. It almost feels Shakespearean at times. You know, Romeo and Juliet, where violence catching up with you. There's just so much going on. And this is not a long movie. This is 90 minutes. There's a lot packed into this film. A lot of storytelling, a lot of ideas, a lot of places to just ponder upon. You know, we just talked about this couple minutes dinner scene and where's that going? Just great storytelling here from Cronenberg. Great acting from the cast. Yeah, high recommend for A History of Violence. Stuart. I'm really surprised and pleasantly surprised to hear you guys are digging it just for a drama. To me, whether you are up for this movie is really whether you're up for experiencing its portent, what it's expressing in the details. If you're looking for a thriller or an action movie, this is probably going to come off pretty mediocre. A little slow, a little pessimistic, kind of a why did this win so many awards kind of deal. I mean, this is a archetypal story. There are so many Westerns. Clint Eastwood. I made a career out of being the man with no name that rode into a town and made a town better. And we know he was an outlaw out in the West, but here we know he's a hero. And when we see that story, we believe it. 
But the way that Cronenberg has shaped this, it is full of nuance and dread and doubt. And it is only because Vigo has been so good in a complicated role that I would even be willing to consider whether he could be called a hero or whether those labels even apply here. This is a morally ambivalent Western that is just pure Cronenberg. I mean, I like Cronenberg, so I always seek it out. I think it's a strong representation of the way he plays with identity. But it's qualified in the sense that if you want more of a gangster thing, I mean, if if you're looking for hitmen, the comic may be more your speed. There's a lot more people getting whacked. There's a lot more celebration of violence. This is really a meditation on violence. And I think that having that perspective is key. But recommend. And I'm going to recommend this film as well. And I never saw Bush era parallels in this till you mentioned them, Stuart. And I think that they're so subtle as to be non-existence unless you're looking for them. That's the case, I feel, about a lot of deconstruction. What I see here is a thriller for the first 45 minutes. The very first time I watched it, I was so enraptured wondering in that Hitchcockian way, is he really Joey? And I didn't know. I thought it did a good job of keeping that suspense. The drama scenes, because of the performances, really worked for me and helped me give a shit whether or not he was really Joey or if he was just going to be persecuted. So I think this movie actually does work as a thriller. I think it works on that level. I think that its 90-minute runtime really helps with that. It is got a lot of scenes with just characters and development and relationships, but it keeps moving, too. It's very fast-paced. This thing has its definitive acts, but anytime they're in Indiana... There is tension, and then it even gets higher in Philadelphia. This movie, to me, is a suspense film. It keeps me in suspense, wondering what's going to happen to these people, because I know Cronenberg's a cold-hearted motherfucker. I watched him make Gina Davis shoot Jeff Goldblum in the head. So, I don't think any of these characters are safe the way I would in a normal Hollywood film, because I feel like he could kill any of them at any time, and he has spent the time to make me care about them, I care very much about their fates, and it leaves me in suspense, which is why when the action scenes occur, I care far more in this movie than I would in, say, Lethal Weapon 4, because I care so much about these characters. It's a strong, strong recommend, and I say flush Stewart's caveats. I think it works on multiple levels for multiple audiences. But the... Final note is, hey, three green arrows. So, Jacob Stewart, thank you for joining me. And to our listeners, if you enjoyed this podcast, please head to iTunes. We could really use a five-star review from you. And clicking the stars helps writing us a review, helps a lot more, helps other listeners know why you give us the five stars instead of just clicking the button and adding to an average. And we will be back next week continuing our DC Hitman with the first one that really feels like a comic... V for Vendetta. But do they feel like hitmen? I guess we'll find out. So until next time, don't forget your shoes. Pinball, this is Chopper 3. Prepare for extraction. My favorite part was when we were completely on fire, but the shootout, that was good times. Thank you for listening to this episode of Now Playing, and we hope you've enjoyed the show. Now I get to walk away. We all would have walked rogue. Come to NowPlayingPodcast.com each week as we review another DC Hitman movie. A more perfect stage could not be asked for. In the archives at NowPlayingPodcast.com, you can hear reviews of hundreds of comic book movies, 
such as all the Batman and Superman films, the Marvel Avengers films, Spider-Man, Catwoman, Howard the Duck, Man-Thing, Kick-Ass, X-Men, and many more. You can also hear reviews of non-comic-based films, including Star Trek, Predator, James Bond, Rambo, Rocky, and more. Find hundreds of movie review podcasts at nowplayingpodcast.com. It's like giving a handgun to a six-year-old, Wade. You don't know how it's going to end, but you're pretty sure it's going to make the papers. While at nowplayingpodcast.com, be sure to join our forums, where you can discuss this review with other listeners. You can also follow Now Playing on Facebook and Twitter, where the hosts post new episode announcements and written movie reviews. The links to our social media pages can be found at nowplayingpodcast.com. I need you. They're coming. I can feel it. Support from listeners like you help keep Now Playing operating. You can find a link to donate using PayPal at the bottom of our website, nowplayingpodcast.com. How much do you want? $200. Okay. Deal. Could I have had more? You'll never know. You can also help Now Playing by leaving a five-star review on iTunes. A link to Now Playing's iTunes listing can be found at nowplayingpodcast.com. Even though I do not know you, I love you. With all my heart, I love you. Now Playing's DC Hitmen Retrospective Series is edited by Dylan, Jeff, and Arnie. This is a nice town. We have nice people here. We take care of our nice people. You understand me? Now Playing Credit Narration by Brock. We heard his voice. The man with a voice, the man with a throat. The guy's got a throat. Come on! Now Playing is not affiliated with the producers of these motion pictures. All movies discussed on Now Playing are the intellectual property of their respective copyright holders, and no infringement is intended. So it's like that, huh? Yeah. It's like that. The opinions expressed in Now Playing are those of the individual hosts and may not reflect the opinion of Venganza Media Incorporated. As the authenticity of this document cannot be verified, it could be an elaborate forgery created by the terrorist as easily as it could be the deranged fantasy of a former party member who resigned for psychological reasons. Any discussion of this document or its contents will be regarded at the very least as an act of sedition, if not a willful act of treason. Now Playing is a Venganza Media production, copyright 2013, all rights reserved, and no part of this show may be reproduced, repurposed, or redistributed without the written permission of Venganza Media Incorporated. Frank, how many times have I told you, you cannot trust the system? I told you, when you're in the system, they switch the flip, and you're done. I'm gonna credit Vito, I'm, I'm gonna credit Vito. Yeah, did Jesus go to the desert? I was thinking... Yes, he did. Okay. 40, fasted for 40 days and 40 nights. I didn't realize that was a Jesus thing. I thought that was a Jim Morrison thing. I was getting the doors off of this.